Welcome to the Together PDX podcast. You're listening to our Gospel Gathering series, where we will be replaying valuable content from past events where local Portland leaders gathered to hear from authors, theologians, and scholars. We'd like to note that the views shared by our guests don't necessarily reflect those of the entire Together PDX team. We pray today's content enriches your day and spirit. Hey everyone, I'm Elise Gallus, and today I'm excited to share yet another recording of a COVID gospel gathering that happened over Zoom, this time with Father Ron Rollheiser on the topic of ministry and self-care in an anxious time. You may know Father Rollheiser from his popular book, The Holy Longing. But if you're new to him, don't worry. This episode starts with a fantastic introduction and hype up from John Mark Colmer. I think this is a great word for right now because Father Ron isn't only speaking to the time of the pandemic. A few years later, this is still an anxious, divided time. Father Rollheiser names some of the tensions within church and religion. It's fascinating. You'll hear some initial ideas from Father Ron, then some Q&A by John Mark Comer, former pastor of Bridgetown, and Renji Abraham from Multnomah University. Enjoy part one of Father Ron Rollheiser's 2020 talk, Ministry and Self-Care in an Anxious Time. Good morning, everybody. You know, we are living through a, a very hard time, but it is a beautiful day in the Pacific Northwest. And it is my honor to introduce you to Father Ron Rollheiser. He said to call him Ron, but I just do not feel at all comfortable with that. Father Rollheiser has been a priest since 1972. He's Canadian by birth, but currently and for many years has been the president of the Oblate School of Theology in San Antonio, Texas. But he's best known as a writer on Christian spirituality. Um, you know, the gift of the book is that people like you and me get to be mentored by leaders who are thousands of miles away or have been dead for hundreds of years, or in my case, just that we could never get access to because they are far out of our league. And Father Rollheiser, we don't know each other, but um, you have been that for me for so many years. If I had to name just two or three thinkers and followers of Jesus outside of the New Testament who really have given shape to the cartography of my spiritual life, you'd be at the top of that list. Um, we recently stole Ben Sassy's idea of developing a family canon of about 50 books that shape the ethos of your family that you pass down gener- generation to generation. So we're developing ours right now, and we sat down to make our list, like literally at the top of the list, the first one in was Sacred Fire by you. Um, I recently read Frederick Buechner's short little memoir, Telling Secrets, and you know, he was a novelist and a pastor, and he has a couple pages, my favorite part of the book, where he calls pastors to basically function like a novelist and to pay attention to their own life with God in order to help other people that they pastor pay attention to their own life with God. And Father Ron, you have done that so well, just the the way that you put language to the felt experience of the soul and the spiritual journey is just without parallel in my experience. So we're really grateful. For those of you that are new to Father Rollheiser, if you're interested in reading his work, his best known work is The Holy Longing, beautiful book. His most recent work is Domestic Monastery, which you can read in about 45 minutes. And uh, it's all about parenting and spiritual formation. It is gold. I think I bought literally 10 copies at Christmas and gave them to Every young parent kind of in my family and little sphere of relationships is really good. And then my favorite book of all time by him is Sacred Fire. I read it every single year, at least once. And it's about kind of the mix of developmental psychology and Christian stage theory and specifically about discipleship in the middle years of your life. Kind of that long run from when you kind of settle into adulthood and you have a maybe a family or a job or maybe a mortgage or whatever that respons- weight of responsibility is now on you all the way kind of to retirement. And it's just such a gift. And so we're really grateful that you would give us your time. Father Ruhlheiser, I want to turn it over to you. As Kevin said, the title is Ministry and Kind of Soul Care in This Time of Anxiety. I've been a pastor for 20 years and the last three months have been without parallel, by far the most difficult thing I've ever been through. So I am just waiting on the edge of my seat. I have my notepad open. I'm ready to listen. And for all of you on here, would you just please give, I know we're on mute, but you give a warm virtual welcome to Father Ronald Bullheiser. 
Well, thank you, John. That was a very, very generous introduction, and now I'm I'm humbled by that, and I I hope I'm not going to be too disappointing after this. So we we want to look today at uh, ministry and self care in an anxious time, and this is an anxious time. I'm going to share the screen here just briefly for a minute, just to show you what what we want to do, um, and, and then I'll uh, I'll revert back to uh, the thing. But basically, I want to do with you two things. In the first hour, or the first section, which is not an hour, I want to look at naming the tensions and the tiredness within ministry in our anxious time, and then look at how we're beset from without and beset from within. And I, I want to take the, the text from beset from Hebrews. So you see down there, um, whoever wrote Hebrews, we used to attribute to Paul, we don't know really wrote this this letter, but it says, every high priest is taken from among men, taken from, it's appointed on behalf of men, people, to things pertaining to God in order to, or, in order to offer gifts and sacrifices for his sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and the misguided, since he himself or herself is also beset by weakness. I want to really zero on that last night. We are beset by weakness, and therefore we can deal gently with other people. Let's look at that. Um, being beset from without and within. <clears throat> I want to begin with just two, two quotes, statements. Um, Richard Rohr, whom I'm sure you're all familiar with, Richard Rohr likes to say that not everything can be fixed or cured, but it should be named properly. It's very important. Not everything can be fixed or cured, but it should be named properly. And I'm convinced today in the churches, well, in society too, there's there's simply a lot of sloppy naming where people say, well, we live in a postmodern world, or are we? Or this is post-Christian in the West, is it? And so on. So I want to try to name, but um, the second quote comes from one of my favorite philosophers, James Hillman. And Hillman says, a symptom suffers most when it doesn't know where it belongs. It's a good expression. A symptom suffers the most when it doesn't know where it belongs. So as an example, imagine you have a backache, and then you start thinking all kinds of dark thoughts. This might be bone cancer or whatever. You go and you see a, a doctor, and the doctor says, this is arthritis. Now, it's not a pleasant diagnosis, but you know what it is, you know? Um, so this morning, I want to, the first part, I want to do more just some, some, uh, uh, some, some naming of the struggles that, that beset us. I want to name really here three major struggles, but then really draw with the, 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 the third one. And the first one is, and, and, and you've been talking about this just in, in the minutes I've been with you, we live in a, in, in a very torn, polarized, divided time with a lot of wounds in our society and so on. Um, and so there's, there's a lot of tension out there. There's a lot of resentment from, from a lot of people. Um, you know, I'm a Canadian, so I haven't lived in the United States other than the last 15 years. But I don't suspect that this country has ever been as divided as right now since the Civil War. You know, like uh, families can't have conversations together at tables and so on. Um, and so it, we're living in a very, very polarized time um, in which our communities are torn and fragmented. And as um, somebody ministering, you're right in the middle of this. And uh, you can't help. But simply, if it, even if you're a saint, you're going to get very, very tired from just dealing with this all the time. And then we live at a time where, say, we, um, we live and love and forgive, where we struggle to do that inside of just the infectious, infectious ideologies that afflict us. You know, um, you know our, our culture, not just our culture, all cultures, are, we're just beset with ideologies. You know, I often think, you know, when somebody says, what do you think about this? I think the honest answer sometimes would be, I really don't know. I know what I'm supposed to think if I'm a liberal circle, a conservative circle, or this kind of circle, or that kind of circle that... I'm not sure we, we we ever get to what we call true sincerity, you know. Sincerity comes from two Latin words, sinicere, which means without wax. 
There's no makeup. There's no wax. It's just raw. Um, and it's hard to get there. And I'll, I'll give you a simple example. Um, 15 years ago, when, when Mel Gibson came up with this movie called um, the, the Passion of the Christ, and liberals, conservatives just lined up against it. The conservatives said, this is the greatest movie ever done on Jesus. And conservative liberals said, you know, this is a, it's a horrible movie and so on. I was kind of convinced that I'm not sure anybody was really watching the movie. I think liberals and conservatives watch, were watching each other watch the movie and reacting. So we, we, we live with uh, kind of infectious ideologies. We inhale them, you know, and that's kind of the... <clears throat> the social milieu, um, the existential, we'd say, in philosophy that we live under. But now, I want to spend some time <clears throat> looking at the tensions within our faith, the tensions within religion, the tension within our churches, you know. And I want to try to, to, to tease out um, four of them. And, um, and, and these tensions, I want to say, are innate. They're innate, which means... They'll always be there, and they always should be there, you know. Um, these are, you know, you have tensions that are artificial or they're provoked or whatever, but there's tensions that there are that are innate. They should always be there, uh, and they always will be there. And the first one I say is the tension between what I call Deuteronomy, prophecy, and wisdom. Deuteronomy, prophecy, wisdom. Um, you know, and, and this, I want to lean on the work here of Walter Brueggemann, who I'm sure you're all familiar with, but uh, Walter Brueggemann writes, he says, imagine, um, just take the question, and, and you can ask yourself this, what is the very essence of religion? Or in our case, what is the very essence of Christianity? What, what is just the, beyond the penultimate, the ultimate? What, what is it? And he said, in scripture, but you get three answers, and you always get three answers. For some, he calls it Deuteronomy. You know, Deuteronomy, the answer is the essence of religion is right doctrine and right practice and right morals. You know, that when we used to define, I remember in Roman Catholicism, what makes a practicing Catholic? That somebody goes to church and keeps the commandments. You know, I'm sure in your own denomination, so on. It's kind of the same thing. What makes for a practicing Christian? Well, somebody who goes to church and obeys the rules, you know. But then you see in early Judaism, the early part of the Old Testament, that that was that that became so legalistic that after a while they just had books and books of how you do this. It got right down to how you boil milk. You know, this is this is if you're a good Jew, um, this is what you do, and then that held sway. As Brueggemann says, until the great prophets came along. So the great prophets came along and they literally blew this out of the water. So the great prophets came along and they said, you know something? God doesn't really care how you boil milk, you know. Uh, you know what God cares about? The poor. And that's when they brought in that first great social justice motif. And, you know, they, they have a, there's a, a mantra in there that's still worth memorizing. So the great prophet said, the quality of your faith will be judged by the quality of justice in the land. And the quality of justice in the land will always be judged by how the weakest in, in, in your society, which they called widows, orphans, and strangers. You know, that's code for the weakest members. How are they faring while you're alive? You know, that's quite a, quite a switch from religious practice. They're saying, you know, what God cares about are the poor, and you're going to be judged, not on your religious practice, but on how you treated the poor when you were alive, particularly the three most vulnerable groups. But then as Brueggemann points out, the Old Testament doesn't end there. After the prophets come the wisdom figures and wisdom literature, the Psalms as an example, and they come along, they say, you know what's more important than, than religious practice? And you know what's more important than justice? How you do it. How do you do it? You know, and they say what God wants from you is a mellow, compassionate heart or a wise, compassionate heart. So they'd say 
the very essence of religion is to have a wise and compassionate heart, and then you will do religious practice, and you will do justice, and so on. Now, if you take move to the New Testament, to the Gospels, and you look at Jesus with them, you'll see what Jesus does is Jesus actually ratifies all three. So Jesus comes along and he says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. So he doesn't at all, you know, bracket religious practice. But then even stronger than the prophets, he comes up with the justice thing. And because if he says, you're going to be judged, you know, we have that scary text in Matthew 25, where Jesus says, and the question is, the last judgment, how will you be judged? And Jesus says, well, the judge will come out. There'll be sheep to the right, goats to the left. He's going to divide the people, and there's going to be only one criteria of questions. Did you feed the hungry, give drink to the thirsty, clothe the naked, visit prisoners? And you say, well, what about church practice, and what about the commandments, and what about the sixth commandment, and so on? But it doesn't appear there, just all this. You know, I sometimes tell seminarians when I'm teaching them, I said, if you would go into a church on Sunday and preach that, you know, just say, this is... You're going to be judged by how you treat the poor. That's it. You would be in some ecclesial office the next day. If you're a Roman Catholic, you'd be in the bishop's office and so on. And so one seminarian said, well, how did Jesus get away with that? I said, he didn't. He wasn't called to the bishop's office. They crucified him, you know. But Jesus is stronger, in fact, and he goes one step further than the prophets. Remember, the prophets said, God favors the poor. Jesus went further. Jesus says, God is in the poor. The way you treat the poor, that's the way you're treating God. But then Jesus comes along too and he says, however, you know what God really wants? You know, be compassionate the way your heavenly father is compassionate. That, um, so that it, in, in effect in the New Testament and, and, and in, in the Jewish scriptures, you get religions calls you to right practice. It calls you to the right message for the poor, and it calls you to the right energy. Uh, except, now that's the tension I want to point out. Invariably, in all, it's true in, the, in, in both testaments of scripture, uh, and it's true in the, every one of our churches today, you have three kinds of people. You have Deuteronomy people, who are all about practice, and so on. You have social justice people, who are all about justice. And then you still have the people going off in retreats, you know, and doing centering prayer and, you know, a mindfulness and so on. And um, and all of that is good, except this is the issue. Usually they don't get along all that well. And usually it's not the same person doing all three. You know, Jesus could do all three. Or if I can use a Roman Catholic example, Dorothy Day. Dorothy Day could lead the pious prayer circle and she could lead the peace march, you know, um, and she could teach you how to pray. You know, today it usually takes three separate people. So uh, I, I have a pretty wide experience now with, with various churches. And um, sometimes it shakes out more in the liberal conservative thing, but, but it's more, more accurately. Um, people dig in in three ways, you know, right practice, social justice, right energy. Um, and, and so you'll always be dealing with that tension. That's an innate tension. Okay. Because it comes right from the heart of the message itself. Then the second tension, you know, incidentally, I, I, you've all got a copy now on, of these notes. So if you check your email, you can lay these notes in front of you. Um, the tension between what I call the Son of God and Adonai. I want to tease out a scripture text for you here, you know. Now, I forget now whether I, I did this in, in Sacred Fire or not. You know, if I did, then forgive me the repetition. But it's it's a it's a wonderful text. It's in Mark's gospel. It's also in Matthew's gospel um, of Jesus' dialogue with the Syrophoenician woman. And incidentally, for those of you who preach, that is a homilous delight. It's a text you want to order from the catalog because you can sound really brilliant because the text <laughs> is so rich and layered. You know, and it's this. Let me run the incident and then we'll. So they say one day Jesus is walking along the borders of Samaria. Okay. When he met a woman 
okay? And the woman happened to be a Syrophoenician. And she says to him, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me and cure my daughter who is very sick. And Jesus says to her, and one of the more curious lines you're going to get in the New Testament, Jesus says, no. He said, it's not fair to take the bread of the children and give it to the house dogs. Isn't that a wonderful pastoral line? <laughs> Someone came up to you and help you say, no, I, I don't work with dogs. I only work with my own denomination. Okay. But then she says, ah, yes, Lord Adonai. Notice she changes the designation. She said, Jesus, son of David. Now she says, ah, yes, Lord Adonai. But even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the children's table. And then Jesus does a 180 degree turn. He says, you know, wow. He said, in all of Israel, I never saw faith like yours. And he gives you the miracle. Now, what happened there? Start from the beginning. It's a carefully worded text. One day, Jesus was walking along the borders of Samaria. You know, in, in the Gospels, oftentimes, geography is really, really important, theologically. It's not just a designation, you know. Borders means what? Borders means edges. He was walking along the edges of what? Okay. Um, well, Samaria. Samaria was a different religion. Okay. Samaria was a different ethnicity. And he's going to be the woman who's a different gender. You know, someone said today, where is the Christian church standing today? I could say very simply, we're standing on new borders of ethnicity, religion, and gender. Um, and if, you know, the last, the news for the last 50 years hasn't woken us up, you know, we won't wake up, you know. We're on new borders of ethnicity, religion, gender, okay. Now, the woman's a Syrophoenician, that's not important. Uh, what's important so much, I mean, specifically, it's important that she's not a Jew. Okay, and so she comes up to Jesus and she says, Jesus, son of David. She's calling him by his Jewish title, you know, the Jewish Messiah. She comes up, she's literally saying, are you the Jewish Messiah? She says, I'd like to get a miracle. And then Jesus says, no, um, I, I, I only work, I'm designated for the children of Israel. I only work with my own denomination. Incidentally, that's... Um, I've been called only to the, the lost sheep of Israel. That was a tension that perdured through the New Testament in terms of Paul and, and uh, Peter. And do we go to the Gentiles or not? Who are we called to? Okay. Um, and he says, no, I won't do it for you. And then she's a pretty resilient woman. Okay. You know, people sometimes uh, praise her persistence, but it's not so much the persistence. It's her resiliency and her quick change. So it says, ah, yes, Lord Adonai. Notice she calls him by a completely different title. Adonai is the universal word for God, the universal for God. Now let's, let's play this out. Imagine this. In one of your religious community, your, your, your parishes or whatever you call them, your Sunday community, imagine you're doing a baptismal program and you have a, a group. You have 10 or 15 people. And you work with them over some months. You, know, you, you, you work with them for some months. And now you're going to have a Sunday. You're going to have a beautiful baptism. The people are there. There's water in the baptistry. And um, you're all, you know, uh, everybody's excited. And as these people are lined up, a woman comes in whom you've never seen. And she comes up to you and says, uh, you know, are, do you do the baptismal stuff here? And you say, yeah. She said, I'd like to be baptized. What do you think your chances are? Well, you'd probably answer like Jesus. You'd say, no, no, it's, just, it's not fair to these people, you know. They just did eight weeks of preparation. Jesus telling the woman, you know, um, I'm the Jewish Messiah. The Jews just did about 800 years of, of sacramental preparation here. You can't just jump in the line. But now back to you and the woman. She said, sorry, sorry, I obviously mistrust you. You're not just the minister here or the priest or the, uh, the person in charge of baptism. Are you also a universal instrument for salvation for all people on this planet? Adonai. Are you also a universal instrument for all people on this planet? And then, uh, if you were honest, it's yes, I am. said, well, then I'm one of yours. I'm one of yours. And then if you were like Jesus, you'd say, wow, you skipped all the training 
but you're more ready than anybody who's taken the training. Get in line. I'll baptize you first. Now, well, for, for first, uh, a note about the dog, a little footnote. Um, scholars look at that about it's not fair to take the children's bread and give it to the house dogs. They say what, what's behind that is um, two things. First of all, they, they suggested was banter. You know, see, sometimes when, when uh, it seems Jesus and this woman are having a very robust conversation. You know, sometimes you're dealing with people, they're so fragile, and you simply, you can't touch them, you know. Uh, you got to be very gentle. Sometimes during a conversation, it's robust. You, 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 can, you can really kind of give it to each other. So they say, you get the sense that Jesus and this woman have this very robust conversation. But, you know, he nails her, but she also nails him. When she, he says, it's not fair to take the bread of the children and give it to the house dogs. She's in fact saying, yes, if you're a Jew and you're an idiot, yes. You know, see, because the Jews and Gentiles had different uh, customs. In a Jewish house, a dog never went in the house. And the Gentiles, they did. The dogs were under the table. So if you wanted to slip the dog a crumb, you just put your hand down. He's right there. Now, that's the banter part. The deeper part is this. There's a deep, important part to this that ties to this Adonai. Jesus is in effect saying to her, as a Jewish Messiah, I got to step out of the Jewish house to feed you. And she's saying, no, I'm already in your house. You know, that's a powerful text. We need to really look at denominationally, you know, who, <laughs> as a Roman Catholic priest, I have to step out of Roman Catholicism to, to, to tend to some other Christian or Jew or Muslim. Say, no, if you're a universal instrument of salvation, they're already in your house. Everybody's in your house. Now, I bring up this text for this reason, you know, not so much how programmatic or non-programmatic it should be in your ministry. It's, this is an innate tension, you know, each of you to this point. Each of you, you are in one way a son or a daughter of David. You belong to your denomination, Many of you have been ordained in that denomination. You have your roles. You're tending to those particular communities. You're a son or daughter of David, but you're not just that. You're also Adonai, you know, which means you are a universal instrument of salvation for everybody. And that's attention. It was attention in Jesus. It was attention in the early church. It's still attention today, you know. Um, oftentimes, if I could be simplistic here, um, these things shake out liberal conservative. So so often we, you know, if I'm a conservative, I tend to be a son of David. This is Roman Catholicism. This is who I am, so on. These are the rules. If I'm a liberal, I tend to say bracket all church rules, you know. Um, but it's both. It's really meant to be attention. You know, for the first, uh, if I can be personal here, the first almost 16 years of my priesthood, I, I taught at the seminary in Edmonton, Alberta, and we at the time we had a wonderful archbishop. They don't make him like that anymore. Um, and he, he used to teach that to us both in practice and in theory. And, you know, sometimes I'd phone him with a very tricky pastoral problem, and he'd always say, Father, don't ask me about that. He says, you know the rules of the church, you know canon law, you know what should be done. But also, you're standing there, you're looking at these people's pain, you're seeing the blood that's there, you have to bring them together, you have to make a decision. Tell me afterwards. If I disagree, I'll tell you afterwards. Or oftentimes, you tell the, the clergy, you'd say, you're not ecclesial robots. It's a good expression. He said, you're not ecclesial robots. He said, I want you to be loyal to the church, but I want you to be creative. You, 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 you. Basically, he didn't have the terminology to I need you to be Adonai. And um, so, so that's, that, that's an innate tension. And again, inside of our ministry and inside of the people we're going to meet inside of ministry, we're going to have that. Then the next one I call the tension between the canonic and the triumphant Christ. The tension between the canonic and the triumphant Christ. Now, canonic, I take the word from the word kenosis in Hebrew. Uh, I'm in the lead Hebrew. And the letter to the Philippians, that great Christological hymn where St. Saint, uh, Saint Paul says, 
about Jesus. Though he was in the form of God, Jesus did not count equality with God something to be grasped at, but he emptied himself, became a human being, and emptied himself further and became a slave. Kenosis. He went into emptiness. Now, a couple of stories. <clears throat> Some years ago, when I was still working in our general council in Rome, I organized a number of uh, workshops in, in different countries, United States, Canada, um, England, where we, we, we called it missionaries to secularity. Like, how do we become missionaries inside of highly secularized cultures? And I had one of these at the University of Ottawa, and one of the speakers we had was a French-Canadian woman called Vivian Labrie. And she was more of a social worker, not a theologian, but she has a great reputation on the streets of Quebec, um, you know, as this great social worker. And she's a Christian. When she spoke, she kind of stunned the audience at a point. She said, you know, I'm a Christian. She said, and what I'm doing in terms of working on the streets for justice, she said, I'm doing for Jesus. I am doing that for Christ. But she said, I can go three years on the streets and never mention Jesus' name. And she added this line, she says, because I think Jesus is mature enough that he doesn't always demand to be the center of our conscious attention. She said, I believe in a canonic Christ. But she says, I work for Jesus. I don't have to mention his name all the time. Well, about a month later, I was at our general chapter in Rome, and the oblates whom I belong to, we're like in 70 countries. And when we have a general chapter, it's like United Nations meeting. And it's also a, a meeting of ecclesiologies from all over. But anyway, we were trying to write a document. And, um, and we were trying to write a document from scratch. What do we want to say to the world? Not what some experts tell us to say. So we have about two or three days where people just give input. So the first person who stood up was a provincial from Ireland. He stood up sharp, man. He says, I live in Dublin which is the epicenter of the sexual abuse crisis. They said, as a Roman Catholic priest, they said, I keep my head down where it belongs. You know, he says, the only Christ I can preach in Dublin right now is the canonic Christ. You know, well, he hadn't sat down and five people had microphones from Poland, from different places, say, no, 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 now we have to be out there with, you know, like, John Paul with colorful spandex and World Youth Days, and we got to just proclaim the Christ and so on. Uh, somebody even quoted Karl Barth, who said, you know, you have to announce Christ and never be apologetic. So I'll ask you this question, who was right? They are both right. They are both right. You know, the Christ we proclaim is the Christ of kenosis, the Christ who can just disappear and the Christ we proclaim is also the triumphant Christ of the resurrection. And that's a tension. It's a tension in our lives. It's a tension inside of the church. Tension inside of our message. You know, if I can use the Roman Catholic example, and I'm far enough, I'm safe, you know. But for instance, when I, when I preach to Roman Catholic clergy today, you know, not, not on Zoom, but live, oftentimes they're sitting in two groups. You have the Vatican II group, those are people my age and a little bit younger, you know. Um, see, they're much more the canonic. They're not wearing their Roman collars, to, you know. And then you have the younger priests, they're wearing their collars and their soutans, and they're, you know, um, you know, they're very, we have to be triumphant and be out there and show religious symbols. And they're both right. Uh, that's attention. That's attention we need to handle. Okay, I'm going to switch now from being beset from without to being beset from within. So we live in those tensions, but we have our own tensions. I said coping with our own tiredness, our wounds, our depressions, and our inflations. You know, none of us is God. And because we aren't God, we are extremely, we're going to always have our inadequacies, our limits, um, uh, and, and we're going to get tired. Our wounds are going to show through. Our temperament's going to show through. And so we're, we're ministering um, in goodwill, but we're ministering out of perennial tiredness. We're, we're also ministering out of our wounds. You know, none of us come to adulthood. None of us come to ministry without carrying deep wounds. If you ever read the book by Ellis Miller, that wonderful book called The Drama of the Gifted Child. And Ellis Miller would say, 
Um, when you get into your 30s, you know, it's not a question of are you wounded? It's only a question of what are your wounds? None of us come from perfect homes. None of us was valued perfectly and always loved perfectly. And many of us have suffered positive abuse, uh, neglect, um, and we carry those wounds with us, and we minister out of those wounds. The second error I want to say that's precisely we have to make those wounds work for us, that, uh, you know, part of the, the specialness that each of us can bring to ministry is from our woundedness. You know, if you look in your own life, why you were called, why did God call you to ministry and to the to the vocation you are, and a lot of times, a big part is because of your wounds, you can bring something really special there. Then secondly, our temperament. You know, um, um, that isn't often talked about in spirituality, but it's very, very important, our temperament. Um, let, Let me just use some examples. You know, I look at great figures, you know, heroic figures, you know, say a Martin Luther King, a Gandhi, you know, even a Thomas Merton or a Dorothy Day, Daniel Berrigan, some great prophetic figures and so on. And I envy them. You know, I envy them because I don't have their temperament. Because I don't have their temperament, I don't have their strength. You know, let me just quote you two lines. You know, one of my favorite authors, very deep woman, Ruth Burroughs, who's a British Carmelite, now in her 90s. And I remember being in a bookstore once and just picking up one of her books by, you know, browsing and reading the first line. And I said, the first line in her book, I thought, I want to read this book. This is the first line in her book, her autobiography. She says, I was born with a tortured sensitivity and it's made my life particularly difficult. Notice she didn't say I was born serenely and I don't know, it's like said I was born with this tortured sensitivity. And you know, many of us who are called to ministry, you know something? You were born with a, with a, with a pretty extraordinary sensitivity. Maybe not a tortured one, but it makes it difficult for us to be the Gandhi. You know, I was praying some years ago with that text on John the Baptist, you know, great prophet. And they said, John grew and he grew strong in spirit, you know. And I looked at my own life and I thought, um, as I grew as a kid, you know, with my own sensitivities, you know, with the, the public school I went to, the, the ruggedness of, of, of a playground and all the experiences and so on, dealing with some really strong siblings in my family, I said, I grew, I grew with an accommodating spirit, <laughs> See, he grew with a strong spirit. I grew with an accommodating spirit. You know, many people call to ministry, and I've taught in seminaries for years. Many of us, you're gentle, good, uh, sensitive, wonderfully sensitive people. But, you know, because of that sometimes prophecy, the hardness is what's difficult for us, not the softness. You know, there are people who are find it hard to be vulnerable, find it hard to be gentle and so on. I find that for many people in ministry, it's the opposite. You find it hard to be prophetic, hard to put this hard edge out and so on. Um, you're not like John the Baptist. You're more, you've grown gentle and, 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 and accommodating, not weak. It's not weakness, you know, because our culture sometimes like that. It, 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 it's accommodating. And in fact, it's a wonderful quality for empathy, for ministry and so on. But it has its own downside. Okay. Then, I want to just mention two more before then we'll break in about five minutes for the question period. Also, it, it doesn't matter. You know, for instance, I'm a Roman Catholic and I'm a celibate. Uh, many of you are, are married and have families and so on. It doesn't matter in this sense. In ministry, you're also going to experience some fierce loneliness. You know, that, that family can help come in, but, but there's a loneliness in the ministry. You know, René Girard, the great French anthropologist, he coined an expression about Jesus that I liked. You know, I mean, just, I like the expression. He coined the expression, he said, Jesus was, and I want to get this pronounced right, he said, unanimity minus one. 
unanimity minus one. You know, that's about as lonely as you can get. Just the whole world, and then you're just you, you know? Or that, that great metaphor that Luke has in his gospel, when Jesus is in the garden, and he's praying, and Luke says, he was a stone's throw from everyone. Well, how far can you throw a stone? You know, I learned what that, what that expression means, not from scripture, but once visiting a young man dying of cancer in, in, in a cancer ward. He was 56. And he said, Father, he says, you know, he said, I have a wonderful wife, wonderful kids, and they hold my hand every minute. He said, but when you die, you're dying alone. He said, I'm a stone's throw from everyone. Now, uh, it's pretty radical when you're dying, but all of us in ministry, and you know the moments, there's going to be moments where you're literally a stone's throw from everyone. You are unanimity minus one. And then finally, um, he said from within, we're all, no matter who you are, in fact, the more sensitive you are, the more you're going to struggle with this. And that is our fluctuation between depression and inflation. Our fluctuation between depression and inflation. Um, I want to risk saying this. Um, well, I want to use a bad word, okay? I want to use a bad word, but I want to apologize about the word to Christian when it comes out, but it's the most accurate word. But I was once at a conference, um, and, and this, uh, this uh, well, I'll mention the name. It was it was Robert L. Moore, who sadly ended up suicidal of the depression. So but one of really the great men I've met, you know, and he was giving a, a, a conference to, um, as today, it was people in, in, in healing ministries, ministers, priests, and so on. And he said, if, if you're, um, he began his talk this way. He said, if you're here tonight, he said, uh, you probably live with a certain amount of chronic depression. He said, not clinical depression, chronic depression. He said, because most sensitive people live with a certain chronic depression. And he said, that's good. That's good. And here comes the bad word. He said, because most people who aren't enough sensitive to depression, he said, are assholes. And he said, most, sorry about the word. <laughs> he said, most sensitive people are so afraid of being that, that we, we, we sit a lot of our energies and we don't act them out. We're afraid of ego. And he said so that um, um, we end up being depressed a lot. And then um, sometimes when we let go, we end up being inflated. And he says the task, and I love this coinage. He says the task, he said, is never to be full of yourself, but never to be empty of God. And that's hard. That's a chronic struggle um, for somebody who's sensitive. You know, it's not a chronic struggle if you're on the other side. You're, just, you're, you're always to fully yourself and so on. Um, but he says to, to be not full of yourself, inflation, and not to be empty of God, not to be empty of this great energy. You know, and when you look at great people, the Gandhis, the Martin Luther Kings, you know, the, the Mother Teresas, they, they, they noticed they were never depressed. They, 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 uh, and they never apologized for, um, for their light, um, see, but they were never inflated. You know, rock stars and so on, some athletes and so on, they bring a great energy. It's real energy. It's godly energy, but oftentimes they're identified with it. There's an inflation there, you know. So as a, as a, as a minister, as, or just as a sensitive woman or man, um, we're always going to be dealing with this, this tension instead of us. And that's a healthy tension. It's an innate tension, you know. Um, I may not be full of myself. I may not be empty of God. Depression, inflation, depression, inflation. Okay, I've gone on here now for for the 45 minutes and so on, so I'm going to turn it back to uh, Mark and uh, uh, Raji. Is that the way you say your name? It's uh, it's Renji. Um, Renji. Father Ron. Oh, yes. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Father Ron, thank you so much for um, taking the time to walk through and, and name the tensions that are at play. Uh, in our ministry and our lives, um, specifically um, as you uh, see what's happening in our world uh, with the racial unrest that is um, national and then local uh, in, in the cities and how people are, are wrestling with that, with, specifically with the churches. 
um, I think when I'm listening to uh, my, my brothers and sisters from the black community, um, I think they're, they're calling out the fact that the church hasn't been able to live in the tension well, to, um, to take uh, the, the spiritual formation and the practice of social action. Um, is there, um, as you perceive this, as you look at what's going on, uh, is there a time uh, where we need to emphasize one over the other because of a, a misguided emphasis in one area? Yes. Yes. No. Th- thanks, Renzi. Um, there, there, a moment calls for its own special grace. And see, um, so if I can address this. This now, the moment we're in right now, since since uh, uh, well, since we recognize the moment of the death of uh, uh, George Floyd, you know, um, that that calls for special action. And see, this is not a not a time that we should call for caution, you know. See, and and also, you know, in in uh, um, one of the reasons is in in our preaching, I don't think a lot of Christians are still accepting that social justice is a non-negotiable part of the Christian life, you know, that they think it's an extra you can do or not do, you know. Um, but, I, I, you know, I hope I didn't come on too bland in this first hour, you know, because I'm talking about the tensions that we as, as ministers and so on have to face, you know, with, um, um, I'll, I'll give you an example, an example right from our school. Right now we are writing a statement from the school on, on this, um, but you know, we have the statement about that Black Lives Matter, but we want to add in just one line about that we shouldn't be using religious symbols, <laughs> you know, about the, 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 the presidential march across there to the church and so on. Um, but we know if we do this, we're going to lose a bunch of donors. You know, we, we just know it. You know, so we have to, uh, you know, do we do this on principle? We're going to upset some of our own donors. Um, because I know one of our donors already saw it in a letter that uh, um, that our provincial released in Washington. That if you put that in, he said the scholarships I'm offering the school are over, and so on. See, so that, but I know that all of you face similar issues. You know, like we don't have homogeneous, but but I, I agree. Now is a time I think we have to risk. We have to risk, and we have to risk misunderstanding. We have to risk being accused of being one-sided with the gospel. You know. Um, um, this isn't an ordinary time. Father Rollheiser, I'd love to just have you keep riffing on that. You know, um, you mentioned early on in your talk some of the, you know, ideologies that I think you use the word inflict our soul, you know, and we really live in an age of ideology. And um, you've written in some of your books before in Sacred Fire and I think more recently in Walking with God about how it's almost impossible to get involved with social justice without getting your hands a little bit dirty because it's always connected to socio-political agendas that often might be very crosswise with the way of Jesus. And I think that's a real struggle for so many of us who are orthodox, historic followers of Jesus, who care deeply about racial justice in particular and social justice but how do we engage if we're not a postmodern Marxist, for example, you know, and because the conversation is often dominated by leftist ideologies, it can make it really tricky where it's like, you know what I mean? Like we have such a deep heart for racial justice, but yet it feels like entering a, a, an ideological quagmire. Anything you want to speak to that? How do we how do we enter into this conversation and do justice in the public sphere at all sorts of different levels? And, and what warnings or wisdom do you have for how we interact with the ideologies of our age? Well, th- thanks, Mark. That's, John, Mark, that, that's a very, and it, it, that's a tough question. Uh, I mean, yeah. it's a good question in terms of, um, well, I'll, I'll use the perfect example of the streets right now. You know, so the, we do march for, for Black Lives Matter, but if you have 10 people smashing windows, <laughs> You know, then it, it seems to compromise the whole thing, you know. Uh, but you'll always have, whether you're the right or the left, you're always going to have your, your, your extreme factions that in a certain sense potentially compromise your witness because you're going to be identified with them, 
you know. And, and in fact, I believe that paralyzes a lot of good people. Yes. It's paralyzed me many times. See, like, if I go there, you know, um, uh, you know, and, and, and especially around issues like, like abortion or now Black Lives Matter and so on, um, you know what's happened? What I call, um, I simply become infected by the ideologies. You know, where you get the virus, <laughs> it gets inside of you, you know. Um, but you know what's happened politically and also in our churches? And that is that the extremes have kind of um, intimidate the center, you know. So let's take the United States politically, you know. Right now, the extreme liberals and the extreme conservatives have so much polarized the discussion on everything that it's almost impossible for us to, re- to, to even govern now, you know. But it's also true in the churches, you know. That's why some churches are splitting and so on. Um, and, uh, and, and it leaves people in the middle really in a quagmire. You know, if, if, you, if you side with this side or you march with that side, are you marching with their whole agenda, you know? Um, you know, I, I know some people in the last election, a lot of Christians, who didn't vote. They said, I just couldn't vote for, for either candidate, you know? Um, well, that's not the answer either. Um, um, well, I'll bring in one other thing here too, with John Mark, and that is also, um, and I've touched on this first hour, it's also your individual call, you know. Um, you know, Jesus doesn't call us all to act in the same way. There are people who are called to walk politically, more, you know, on a stage, you know, that precisely the, the Gandhis and Martin Luther Kings and, the, you know, the Dorothy Days. Um, there are other people who are called to be contemplative and to uh, pray and support and, you know, um, you know, and, and maybe that's a rationalization on my part. I don't know. But, but you know, you, um, you, 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 God doesn't call everybody on conveyor belts, you know, that you do this. That, like you, you have to also respect your temperament as to what you can do and, um, uh, and what you're called to do. And now, now, with that being said, we're always called to stretch ourselves, that we know. The gospel is always calling you to stretch yourself, and uh, um, and maybe it's calling me to go out on a march right now. You know. Do you have any? You know, that's that's really helpful and free. And I only wish most of my church agreed with you on that one. <laughs> any advice? And and Renji, jump in here. But on like, what do you think the role of a pastor is in this time? You know, one of the great areas of debate and disagreement in church history, as I understand it, is about the role of the church toward the larger public sphere at a political level, you know? And obviously the New Testament was written from the perspective of a persecuted minority under an empire. So it doesn't say a lot about how we engage in a democratic process or whatever. And of course you have the Roman Catholic and the Anglican and the Presbyterian veins of the church that have been very involved in politics. And then you have the Anabaptists and Quaker and non-denominational and other, you know, contemplative traditions that have been far more, no, let's create an alternative society that, you know, influences from the margins, but we don't do that. And, you know, there's a genuine disagreement down through church history, but um, that's really tricky right now. Any thoughts on like, what is the role and the responsibility that regardless of our individual call and our individual temperament and all of that, that we just as a pastor in a modern democracy, like what level of responsibility, how do you just, and I'm, I'm not asking for like truth, because I know there's disagreement here. I'm just asking for your opinion. Like, what do you think somebody like me is responsible before God and to my community to lead into in this time? Well, I'm going to start backwards with your question, John Mark. One of them is just like the difference, you know, like the, the, the Quakers answered one way and these another way and so on. You said, you know, there uh, was a different answer. No, I think they are different vocational responses. You know, I think all of those are needed. You know, it's not like, do I become a Quaker or do I become a, you know, some people need to be Quakers and some people need to march and, and so on. Um, but now to, to get to your question, what are you called to? You're not going to like the answer. You're called to be crucified. <laughs> <laughs> Remember, Jesus said, you're called to be crucified, you know, but it doesn't necessarily mean even there's many forms of crucifixion. Let me try to hone in on that, you know. Uh, 
know, we, we always know, remember Jesus said, if you, if you follow me, you're going to suffer, you know. And you're not going to suffer because God's going to lay extra punishment on you. You're going to suffer because precisely the more you open yourself up to God, to Christ, the more pain is going to flow into your life because you're going to be more sensitive to it, you know. Um, but see, you're going to suffer, and you can suffer in different ways. One of them is precisely that you become really active, <clears throat> and you get a lot of people who hate you for it, you know. But there's another way, maybe for pastors, and that is as a pastor, remember, you, you, you are in charge of, I hate the expression sheep, but you're in charge of community. You've got to keep your family together, so you have to be a community builder inside of this, you know. Um, see, so that you, you can't abdicate this role so that, and, and, and all those sheep are your sheep, you know, see, and that's going to stretch you. There's going to be some internal crucifixions as you have to swallow hard. But, uh, um, you know, we, as a leader, you remember Christ's great prayer of unity in, 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 in John, uh, chapter 17, you know, I pray that they may be one, that they may be one. So, uh, but let me give you one concrete, uh, Thing, and I get this from Jim Wallace, you know, uh, well, I think he writes eloquently on justice, but Jim Wallace says one thing, with justice, challenge yourself and challenge your people that they may never bracket fundamental charity. You know, that's what's happening in our churches and our society today. You know, we're becoming uncivil in the name of Christ. You know, we're becoming uncivil in the name of truth. And that's wrong. That's not energy that comes from God's spirit, you know. So no matter what, no matter how passionate, no matter how much anger, injustice, we always have to be charitable. You know, that uh, we, we never, and, and not just charitable, it goes with like kind of a certain respect and a certain charity, you know, um, that and that can be hard for us, you know. One of the, 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 the women, remarkable, one of the, we have a lot of remarkable people, one of the women on our faculty, she said, I watched the news at night. She said, and I go to pray and I ask myself, you know, what does it mean to love in this situation? You know, I think it's, and when you go to pray as a pastor, you say, what does it mean to love? What does it mean to pastor? What does it mean to be charitable in this situation? And, um, and so that's not a prefab answer. It's, it's, um, and, and give you a line from, from Michael Buckley who was one of my great mentors in life. He taught me. A, Mysticism, but Michael Bucky used to say, when prayer feels the most helpless and the most hopeless, that's when it's the most important. You know, when prayer feels the most helpless and the most hopeless, except what is my little prayer going to do? That's when it's the most important. So, see, Mark, so my answer is you, you have to go to your prayer and say, what does it mean to love? What does it mean to, to be a, a pastor in this situation? Uh, Father Ron, uh, I, I loved how you you answered that, and I I think maybe even playing off of that a little bit more, um, as you discern uh, as a pastor, as you discern how to uh, keep unity, oneness, uh, harmony within uh, our body. At the same time, it is is time to take risks, like you said, and it's time to you know there are times where we might make decisions as leaders as we're guiding. And being true to the gospel where um, we might lose donors and we might lose members within our community. Um, what guiding principles allow you to discern um, when um, to conserve your energy with some people who either decide to, to step away because of the direction that you're taking? And, and maybe is it um, you mentioned Jesus was on the borders and I love that that imagery. Um is that one of the is that one of the um, principles right? uh, centering those on the margins? Would you speak to that? Okay, good question. And 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 you asked for principles. And that's all I can give you because you know. Uh, let me give a couple of principles. One of them is always the principle of risk. You know, the the great poet Goethe used to say that the dangers of life are many, and safety is one of the dangers. <laughs> You know, there's a danger in risk, but there's a danger in safety. But, you know, this is my own way of asking this to myself sometimes, and I want to leave, give you this as, as a principle to say, say, is this cross worth dying on? You know, sometimes you have to look at it, just ask yourself, like, we're asked to die on the cross, but but 
sometimes you have to say, is this particular cross worth dying on? Um, or um, is it going to be counterproductive or whatever, you know? Um, you know, sometimes she's that principle in my own life, you know, as a writer, am I going to wade in on this thing? And then you weigh it out and say, well, um, very concretely, see, if I say certain things, I write for 70 newspapers, if 30 newspapers drop me the next week, <laughs> what's this worth, it? you know, like, uh, and I know it's, it's, it's a practical question, so you have to ask yourself, is this cross worth dying on? You know, and sometimes you say, yeah, sometimes say, you know, um, it's worth losing a donor. Um, something might say, no, it's not worth losing a donor uh, for, you know, and, and, and two people might not answer it the same way, or you may not answer it the same way at different times in your life. You know, the way you answer it this year might not be the way you answer it next year or 10 years from now, you know. But, you know, I, I, maybe the question's worded frivolously, but I think you get it. Is this cross worth dying on, you know? Um, but then always pushing yourself with risk, you know, um, because our natural default is towards safety. And so to push yourself gospel-wise and human-wise, it's always, you know, um, I will say the dangers of life are many, and safety is one of those dangers. Uh, that's so well said. You know, kind of connected to that, um, you know, one of the things that I think we as pastors deal with all the time in a pre-COVID world as well is just so many people have so many different expectations on us and we're not God and there's no way we can fulfill them all. And the pastoral call is wide enough and has enough you know, space for diversity. There are all sorts of different types of men and women in those roles. And so in a pre-COVID world, you know, people, some people expect you to be the CEO, others of you, the spiritual director, others, the therapist, others, the community organizer, others, the kind of like life of the party, you know, like everybody has these different expectations that they bring from their prior church experience, from their own, you know, cultural background, ethnic background, from their own personality, from their own woundedness, you know, or family of origin. And they project all of that onto you. And then now in the COVID and moment that we're in, it's just like off the charts. Now there are a ton of political expectations on us. I literally have people mad at me right now that our church hasn't stopped police brutality. <laughs> like, it just feels a little bit outside of my expertise and purview, you know, I think, you know, and but people are hurting. And so managing expectations is really hard for me. And I know some of this is my own personality and shadow side and my own stuff. But, you know, when I either don't fulfill somebody's expectation or I can't fulfill somebody's expectation. It's outside of my time or my limits or my call or my theological paradigm. And then people are mad at me. I feel like a bad person, you know, because I haven't done it all or fulfilled this thing. How do you deal at an internal spiritual and emotional level with people's expectations on you that either you can't meet or maybe even feel that you should not meet, but yet are still very much there and, and, and people judge you based on your, your lack of ability or willingness to meet those expectations. And I'm not talking about illegitimate expectations yeah. like that. Yeah. You'd be godly or kind or faithful yeah. to your spouse, yeah. but you know, the, the more broad ones that are either you disagree with or just, or just beyond your capacity. Yeah. Well, uh, again, Mark, John Mark, I'm going to give you a principle. I think you've got to walk between two extremes. One of them is, you know, insensitivity, where you just, you know, you can be callous and say, the hell with you. I'm going to do what I am. This is what I can do and so on. See, and then there's oversensitivity, where, you know, you're beating yourself up. You know, Henry Nowen used to say, I go to bed every night thinking of what I didn't get done. Yeah. Should have made one more phone call. Should have seen this person in the hospital. Should have seen this, you know. Um, See, so that we can, we have to walk the line between just, you know, hardening ourselves and just saying, like, uh, these are unrealistic, can't do it, you know, and at the same time, just like trying to get into neurosis where you're just constantly beating yourself up. And so, um, you know, somebody once gave me a banner when I was a young priest, and uh, it's a it's kind of a clever little um, uh, sound bite on the banner was simply written, Fear not, you are inadequate. <laughs> it's a good you know, like, um, um, and, and yet at the same time, we have to, um, and I'm going to talk about that in the next hour, the, the tension between 
healthy self-sacrifice and healthy self-care. You know, like um, um, we, we, we have to let ourselves be killed. And, uh, you know, Jesus died at 33, you know, uh, should have been more careful. And yet at the same time, we have there has to be healthy self-care because this is a marathon. You're doing this for 40 and 50 and 60 years, and you, you can't run a marathon like a sprint. And um, um, but, but I would just leave you, John Mark, with that principle between um, and, 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 and maybe as a sensitive person, maybe some spiritual director or some outside person can help you uh, because sensitive people sometimes can't stop beating themselves up. You know, sometimes you simply can't not, you know, put extra guilt on yourself. Or somebody else will say, John Mark, that's impossible. You can't do it. You can't do it. Uh, go to bed, you know, go on a vacation and, uh, you know, hit the reset button. Yeah. Yeah, what a gift. I mean, I love that you answered that question without a solution, but with the reality, naming the tension. And that feels like the major theme from this first talk is a lot of this stuff, there isn't a like, oh, do these three things and you will be free of people's expectations and happy all the time, you know, but it's more about how do we live in that tension? And I very much am to a T that tortured sensitivity. I just ordered a book on the highly sensitive person. So I mean, that's just about the world I live in. And at times I just feel like I should quit my job and go do something else, you know, but um, so this is beyond helpful. Renji, anything you want to say or should we kick into the next season or what do you think, man? Yeah, let's uh, father Ron, Thank you so much. Let's can, kick can into I, the next. Can oh, I just yeah. say one last thing to John, uh, Mark on, on, on the oversensitivity, you know, a philosopher once pointed out to me in a philosophy class, uh, they said, your greatest strength is your greatest weakness, you know, under a different aspect. So, for instance, if you're wonderfully sensitive, that's going to be a great gift for ministry. And it's also going to be your greatest weakness at the same time, you know, um, and vice versa. P- people, you know, you're, the, the brighter your sun, the deeper the shadow, <laughs> you know. But but the, then look at the gift side of that and say, you know, you know that you're, 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 you're going to be a gifted, sensitive minister you know, who can minister to people's souls, and sometimes it's going to drive you nuts, um, you know, and uh, that's the crucifixion, you know, it's not just crosses on Calvary you have to die on. Yeah. Okay, thanks. Yeah, I think if I had to pull one line away so far, it would be you're called to be crucified, which is the last thing I want to hear, but it's truth and I receive it. All right, why don't you take us into session two? Thanks so much for listening to part one of Ministry and Self-Care in an Anxious Time with Father Ron Rollheiser. There's a video version of this talk available at togetherpdx.org slash podcast. Part two of this talk is available right now on the Together PDX podcast.